Today's scripture reading is from 2 Kings 23, 1 through 3, and 1 Timothy 4.13. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies, his statutes, with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture to exhortation, to teaching. This is the word of God. Hi, New Hope. It's great to see everyone this summer morning. Get to worship together and get to open God's word and study it. So why don't we ask the Lord to help us as we do all of that. Let's pray one more time. Lord, we thank you for your presence among us by your spirit. We thank you that we can approach you in the name of Jesus Christ because of what he has done for us. We now have access to you, our Father, to hear from you, to learn from you, and to be transformed by you. Spirit, we ask that you would work in our hearts to receive the truth of your word and respond with faith, with obedience, with a willingness to be shaped by every word that comes from the Father's mouth. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. The church, New Hope Fellowship, is a community of people. Every church is a community of people called out by God. Called out by God to be his people. The church is not a place. It's a people. It's not a building. This is not a church build. This is not a church, although we might call this structure a church. Really, the church is what fills this building. It's a body made up of individuals. And so on the Lord's Day, the church congregates. We get together, and we get together with the hope that the Lord will meet with us and work in us and through us every time we get together to worship him again and again and again. Now, as, as 21st century Westerners, many of us might, um, it's possible for us to emphasize the, the individual or the, the personal aspects of what it means to be a Christian, and there are important, vital, personal and individual aspects of what it means to be a follower of Christ. But I think that we need often to be reoriented, we need to, to and so that we can develop a, a deeper appreciation for the shared experience of what it means to be followers together of a, in a community. The people of God who follow God and will live with God forever. The people of God who were purchased by the blood of Christ, redeemed by the death of Jesus, so that we can now gather as a people and worship him. We need a deeper appreciation for the, the shared experience of gathered worship and, and the long-term effects of gathered worship on us over the course of a lifetime. 
Last week, we started a six-week mini-series called The Gathering, and it's all about corporate worship. And by corporate worship, we simply mean gathered worship as one body, as one congregation together. And that message from last week, it set the course for what we'll be doing over the next several weeks. So if you weren't here, if you missed it, please do listen to it. Um, it'll set some context for, for what we're going to be doing. And what we saw last week is that corporate worship is God's ancient idea. He has always called his people together to worship him together. And we also saw that corporate worship, it reorients us. That is, it, it redirects our minds and our hearts towards what's true. True about God, true about us, true about the world. In the midst of a world where we're being lied to often, and we're often lying to ourselves, we need to be redirected, reoriented to who God truly is and who we are as his people. And so gathered worship reorients us. But it doesn't just do that. Gathered worship forms us. And what I mean is that it shapes us. Not just one Sunday together, but the ongoing rhythm of gathering with God's people, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, it has the effect of shaping us into a certain kind of people. And it's not just because of the content that we're receiving on Sundays, although that's a big part of it. We said this last week, that we're hearing truth. It's coming into our minds, and hopefully it's making its way down into our hearts every time we hear the Word of God, for instance, or we sing. The information is coming to our heads, and hopefully it's making, it down, making its way down into our hearts, and then it's, it's overflowing into the way that we act, the way we live. And so what we said is there's this kind of head, heart, hands dynamic, right? We receive truth here, it flows down into here, and then we live it out with our hands. But what we said last week is that that's not the only way, and that may not even be the primary way that gathered worship forms us. The fact is that the very act of standing together and using our lungs and our mouths to sing praise to God, the very act of, of setting our eyes on the words of God and and, and holding the Bible in our hand and receiving truth, the very act of lifting our hands in worship or bowing our heads in prayer, these physical elements, these repeated patterns of taking the bread and the cup, of even getting in the car and driving to church on Sunday mornings, those very physical patterns, they, they form us. You see, it's not just head, heart, hands. The way we're changed is sometimes and often hands, heart, head. You see, the things that we're doing with our hands, the things that we're repeatedly doing with our bodies, they affect our heart. And what happens in our heart changes the way we think, changes the way we see the world and ourselves and who God is. So in both these ways, gathered worship reorients us and it forms us. So what we're going to do is in the weeks ahead, we'll look at various elements of corporate worship, the different things that we do when we get together. And today, we're looking at the role of the scriptures in our gathering. What role does the Bible, the word of God, play in our corporate worship gatherings? And the passage that's going to guide us is 1 Timothy 4.13, which Brendan just read to us. In some ways, it's a very simple verse, but I invite you to, to open up a Bible, if you have one, to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And just look at that verse with me. If you have a device with you, you can click open to that passage. It says this, 
until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. These words were written in a letter to a young pastor, pastor of a church in a city named Ephesus. Um, the pastor's name is Timothy, and the man writing to Timothy was his mentor and, and spiritual father. His name was Paul the Apostle. And so Paul the Apostle is telling Timothy what faithful ministry and, and church life looks like. And so this letter to Timothy is packed with information from personal testimony to direct instruction to um, information about who Jesus is and what he has done. And along with all of that comes this little piece that we just read. Until I come, Timothy, until I return to you, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation, and to teaching. And I think what this very short sentence lays out for us is the role, at least partially, the role of the Word of God in our gatherings. And so we're going to look at it in three uh, movements or three points. Um, this is what we do when we gather on Sundays. We read God's words, we teach God's words, and we respond to God's words. We read it, we teach it, we respond to it. So let's look at what it means to read God's words. It's very clear in this passage, right? He says, devote yourself to the public reading. This is important. Do it again and again and again. And it's kind of interesting that this is, his, this is where he focuses. The public reading, not the private reading of God's word, although that's incredibly important, but he's talking about the public reading here. You might ask why. Why does that matter so much? We might say, well, it's because people in this era didn't have their personal copies of the scriptures and they didn't have um, Bible apps on their phones. I know they didn't have phones as well. And so, and so it's very important for them to receive God's word, and the only way that can happen is publicly. But I think there's more to that than this. It's more than that. This practice of publicly reading God's word, it's historically rooted. It's this ancient practice that's commanded by God. And I want to give you a couple of examples. In Exodus chapter 24, you don't need to look at it if you don't want, but in Exodus 24, Moses meets with God on Mount Sinai, and he receives God's words from the Lord, and he comes down, and he, and he returns to the people that were, the, the, the people of Israel who were down at the, the foot of the mountain there, and, and he says to, and it says there, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he took the book of the covenant, this book that he had just written, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And the people said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses receives God's word, he records God's word, and he reads it publicly to the gathered people of God. And they're engaged, they receive it, and they respond by saying, everything that the Lord has spoken to us, we will do, and we will be obedient. Later on in the book of 2 Kings, we find that uh, God's people didn't keep that promise. They did not do everything that God had said. In fact, they had lost sight of God's word altogether. The book of the covenant was kind of disregarded and lost. But it's recovered by a king. His name was King Josiah. He was the youngest king ever in the history of Israel. 
And it says in 2 Kings 23 that the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. All right, so, so, so picture this. The king is going up to the temple, and all the people of the kingdom are, are coming as well, along with the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. Imagine the mass, thousands of people of every age, And the king read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. So Josiah recovers. He finds this book of the covenant, dusts it off, and says, let's hold a gathering. Bring the whole kingdom together, and let's read. And that's what he does. Later on in the book of Nehemiah, we find out that once again, God's people had disregarded his word. They had lost their way. But in the time of Nehemiah, there's, there's a recommitment amongst God's people to, to, to reestablish their fidelity to God's word. Once again, they want to hear his word and they want to respond to it. And so this is what happens, says in Nehemiah chapter 8. Some of you may remember this because we studied the book of Nehemiah last year. It says, and all the people gathered as one man. Think again, it's, it's the thousands of people in this kingdom, but now they're in exile. They're no longer in Jerusalem. It, they gather as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, that is the, 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 the book of the, the, the Torah that Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest, listen, he brought the law before the assembly, and both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting their hands. And they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that people understood the reading. You see what's going on here. Once again, the, the word of God has been dusted off, and it's brought before the masses, before the gathering, and it's read, and the people give attention. And how do they respond? They worship. And what's interesting here is that, of course, the content of what they're reading is of, 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 of um, deep importance. Of course, it's, it's God's very words, his instructions for his people. But it's not just the content that matters here. What matters is that they are gathered to listen to that content as one man. Gathered. They're not just hearing it as individuals scattered. They're, they're listening it together as, as if they're, they're one body, united, a single heart, and a desire to hear. And they respond with worship, which means they, they believed what they were hearing. They had been believing lies for many years, lies and lies and lies, and they had lived according to those lies. That's, that's the reason that they're now in exile, punished by God and sent away from their own land and Yet here they're reorienting themselves to truth. 
They're receiving that truth. They're agreeing with God, what God is saying about himself and about them. And it leads to worship. They listen together and then they worship together. Their hands are up, their heads are down. They, they're flat on their face at points. And what's happening here is that they are being reformed into a certain kind of people. They had lost their way. They're in exile. But God is now reshaping them into a worshiping, believing community. And he's doing that through the public reading of his words. So, so you see the impact of the public reading of the Bible. You, you, when, especially when people are willing to agree with what they're hearing and submit to the authority of the word that's coming. It's, it's not just impactful, it's transformative. The life of this people was renewed. They were, they were changed deeply. And he's doing it through the public reading of his words. In our corporate worship gatherings here, we, um, we begin with a call to worship and we end with a benediction. And there's reasons for that. It's, it's very intentional that the call to worship and the benediction would serve as kind of bookends to our corporate worship gathering because the call to worship, in the call to worship, what happens when someone like Che today stands up here and, and welcomes everyone and then goes directly to the word of God and reads what God says to us? What's happening there? God himself is welcoming us into this gathering. God himself is calling us to worship. And so the call to worship is not Che calling us to worship or me calling us to worship. It's God himself speaking to us first and calling us to gather before him. And then what happens at the benediction when I read that final passage from the Bible as, as we stand and then, and then we leave. The benediction, it just literally means a good word. But it's not a good word from me. It's a good word from God. It, it's his word that then sends us out. You see what we're saying here in our worship gatherings, God gets the first word and God gets the last word. Because worship by nature is, is response. And in order for us to respond, God must first speak to us. And so he speaks to us in the call to worship and we respond by worshiping as a gathered church. And then he speaks to us in the benediction and what do we do? We, we then scatter but we scatter as a worshiping people and we continue to worship in our individual lives, in our families, in our workplace, etc. And that practice of beginning and ending with God speaking, the practice is meant to shape us, to form us into a people who are always responding to God as we come and as we go. And then later on in the worship gathering, we have a scripture reading. Brendan read two passages from the Word of God to us today, one from the Old Testament, one from the New. And usually it's the passage that we're going to be teaching on. And many of you have done this too. You've, you've, you've conducted that scripture reading. And if you've done that, thank you for your willingness to serve the church in that way. I, I wonder if we really realize the importance and the, and the power of that practice. I wonder if you realize the power of what you're engaging in when you stand up here to read God's Word. These gathered people. We provide these guidelines to our scripture readers, right? This two-page document, and, it, and it, it explains kind of the rationale for why we read 
the Word of God and how we should read it and how to prepare to read it. And it's not meant to make Scripture readers nervous or overburdened. The reason we provide those guidelines to our Scripture readers is to give them a sense of the, the beauty and the power behind what they're doing. And, and the vital place of that practice within the worship gathering. There are very few things that God has called us to do specifically when we gather. And one of them is devote yourselves to the public reading of the scriptures. So in every gathering, the word of God, it's, it's rehearsed. We hear it multiple times. And that's what makes this a worship gathering or a worship service. Because again, we're responding to what God says to us, what he says about us and about himself. So the question is, how do we receive the word when it's right to us? How do you receive the word when it's right to you? The call to worship, the scripture reading, the benediction, when, when, when Jenny stops in the middle of our worship set. And no, she doesn't stop in the middle of the worship set. In, in the process of worshiping, she opens up God's word and reads to us from Psalm 86. How are you receiving God's word when it's publicly read to you? Do you lean into it, expectant and, and eager to hear our Father's words to us? Do, do you lean into the public reading of Scripture with a heart that says, speak, Lord? I, I want to receive, I want to know and believe and obey and be changed. Do we hang on every word as it's being read to us? It's what God desires. Public reading of his word is a gift to us, and he wants us to hang on every word. He wants us to receive and be transformed. I was um, reminded in a conversation with a, with a brother earlier this week about a guy named Rick Husband. I don't know if you remember this guy. Rick Husband was a NASA astronaut, and in January 2003, he launched into space on the space shuttle Columbia. And uh, Rick Husband was a follower of Christ and a member of God's kingdom. And um, what he did was, he, because he was launching into space, he was leaving his two children behind, Matthew and Laura. And so in order to um, continue to love them and disciple them while he was away, he recorded these devotionals, video recorded them, one for each day that he'd be away, 16 in all. So for each day, he recorded an individual video for each of his two kids, and in each one, he read from a devotional book to them. He prayed for them. He spoke words of love and affirmation to them. And then he said, I'll see you soon. Isn't that beautiful? Now, February 1st, 2003, he wrote this to his daughter, Laura. Or he, he recorded this. She watched it that morning. He said, it's landing day. And hopefully, if the weather's good, I'll be landing today in Florida. I'm certainly looking forward to seeing you and Matthew and Mama. And then Rick read from Laura's devotional book. And when he finished, he prayed for her. And he said, okay, Laura, I won't be long before I see you. I love you very much. And I'll see you in just a little while. I love you. Bye-bye. Later that day, the space shuttle Columbia disintegrated during reentry. 
And those communications became the very last words that Rick's husband ever spoke to his daughter, to his family. She never saw him again. And as you could imagine, those communications became priceless to those little kids, to that family. They would watch those recordings over and over again, memorize them, cry as they watched them, and remember the love of their father. The words of a father who, who loved and longed for them became so precious to them. Mike was not able to keep it, or Rick, I should say, was not able to keep his promise. His words failed. But our father's words don't. In the scriptures, God speaks to us of his never-dying love displayed on the cross. He promises us that it won't be long before we see him. He says, just a little while. Why don't we hang on every word? Are those words precious to us? So precious that whether we're reading them on our own in the solitude of our house or if we're listening to them in the gathered congregation, they move us to see the deep love of our Father to us and to believe his promises that, yes, he, we will see him soon. And, yes, he will keep every word that he's spoken to us. You see, the public reading of Scripture is designed to form us into a people who receive and believe and love God's words together. And an appreciation for the public reading of God's word can then form us into people that will then desire to go into our private places, our closets, our, our homes, and read that same word. But we don't just read God's word in the gathering. We also teach God's word. And that's the other thing that Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 13. Devote yourself not only to the reading, but to the teaching. And teaching simply means unpacking the meaning and the implications of God's word. Being careful to not go beyond God's word, which is a point of concern, right? We want to be careful not to go beyond the scope of what God says here, of course, because if I read God's word to you and then I add to it all of my opinions and my personal philosophies and my own not-so-wise wisdom, and then all I'm doing is undermining the truth of what God says. And so in teaching, we want to unpack what the scriptures actually say. It's what we see Jesus doing throughout the Gospels. It's one of the methods that he used in teaching was he would quote the scriptures, the Old Testament, He'd say things like, you have heard that it was said, and then he'd go on to explain the meaning of what was said. Or he would say, as it was written, he quotes, and then he says, here's what that means. Here's what it says about me. Paul the Apostle, he said, actually he was in Ephesus when he said this at, at Timothy's church. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. He's saying, I wanted to teach to you everything that God wants you to know. The full breadth of what he has for you. And that, of course, takes a long time, doesn't it? Maybe a lifetime isn't enough time, frankly. But we try. And that's why here at New Hope, what we try to do is we typically preach what we call consecutive expository messages. And what that simply means is that we start at the beginning of a book of the Bible and we preach consecutively through it. And in each message, we try to expose, unpack, 
what that section says, whether it's a verse or a chapter or a group of verses. So we move through books of the Bible and we say, here's what God is saying here, and we try to understand it and, and apply it. And doing it that way, going through books of the Bible, it, it keeps us from, from skipping parts of the Bible that we're scared of or that we're uncomfortable with. <laughs> because, frankly, there are lots of parts of the Bible that we might be uncomfortable with. <laughs> we might want to shy away from, right? Let's face it. I mean, there are parts of the Bible that are much harder to deal with than others. Harder to walk out. Right? When the Bible starts talking about submitting to one another, when it starts talking about considering others more important than you, Forgiving and loving people who hurt you. I, I might want to stay away from that stuff, especially if I personally am having trouble doing those things. Don't you think I might be tempted to kind of like, let, let's skip that part. Let's preach something else today because I'm not doing very well in the forgiveness area or in the submitting area. And I don't want to be a hypocrite, so let's, let's shy away from that. No, but as we preach through chunks of the Bible, we don't get that luxury the Lord is saying, here's what's next for you. And whatever it is, we take it, we receive it, and we wrestle with it, and we ask the Spirit to help us to believe and apply it. Some parts of the Bible are just awkward to deal with. When the Bible talks about money, there's no preachers I know that want to talk about money all the time. Or I know there are plenty that do like to talk about money a lot. You probably shouldn't listen to them. There's some aspects of biblical teaching that are out of step with our culture, uncomfortably out of step with our culture. So when the Bible starts talking about sexuality, we might want to shy away from that. Or, or we might tend to want to focus on things that we find personally interesting or important, right? The issues that, that I like, I might feel tempted to just park on that, harp on it. Or, or to simply preach messages that are constantly responding to headlines and the news cycle. That's not what God calls us to do. It's not that the word of God is not relevant to what's going on in our world. It's that what's going on in our world is not meant to drive how we treat what's in here. We need to be rooted in timeless truth. And so consecutive expository preaching, it protects us, keeps us in that. This series that we're in right now is kind of an exception to that because we're preaching on the topic of the gathering. But still, even as we're preaching on this topic of the gathering, we're not going through a book of the Bible. Hopefully, still, we're still looking at passages like 1 Timothy 4, 13 and, and unpacking it. Saying, what does this say? And then, and then part of your responsibility as a church is to make sure that what I'm saying is truly in line with what God is saying. And as we declare this full counsel of God, there, there's this one central message in the full counsel of God that we need to keep coming back to, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's that message of the cross, the message that Jesus Christ lived and died, his death and his resurrection. Paul the apostle, he says in Corinth, he says, I knew nothing amongst you but Christ crucified. All, I just had one message for you over and over again. I would preach it in different ways, but it was always about the same thing. Jesus Christ was crucified and he rose from the dead for you. And he says, he says to that same church, that message is of first importance. There are many important things in the Bible. Nothing's more important than that message. And so teaching, the teaching that Paul's talking about here, 
It involves a, a, declar- a declaration, a, 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 a delivery, a heralding of this message of the gospel. This news that, that God became a man named Jesus Christ. And he was a man who perfectly embodied, he lived out every word in the book of the covenant. He lived out perfectly every law in the Torah. And that matters because that's precisely what we have failed to do. We've broken the terms of the covenant again and again, just like God's people did in the Old Testament again and again. And for that, we deserve his judgment, his wrath. We deserve death. But God, motivated by love, deep love for us, he became that perfect man. And that perfect man was was willing to die brutally, unjustly. He was murdered, and, and his death was purposeful, and it was planned, and it was powerful because he died for a people. He died in the place of a people. And by dying, he paid the debt, the, the penalty incurred by all of their covenant-breaking sin. And then he rose again. And in doing that, he showed the world that the penalty was completely paid for. The debt was completely covered. And and that's love. That's the glory of God in the gospel, and it sits at the very core of everything that God says in his scriptures. It's unsurpassable good news and tells us that if we receive Jesus as Lord, we will be not only forgiven and cleared of all charges, but we'll be welcomed into the family of God, adopted as beloved sons and daughters. And that message tells us that nothing can can separate us from that, not even our continued failures, past, present, future, our sins, not even death. This message tells you that you are his, you're, 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 you're his redeemed people. And, and you now have this new unbreakable identity. And you're loved with a never stopping love. You see, that message, that, that good word... <laughs> That occupies the very center of what we need to teach and what we need to hear from children's ministry to my funeral. That's all I want to hear. From the cradle to the grave, I want my kids to hear this. And and everywhere in between. And that's what we want to hear when we gather. It has implications for every single aspect of life, right? So it's this repeated news with limitless implications. And so we want to rehearse that news and absorb it and find ways to apply it to every area of life so that it becomes a kind of filter through which we see everything. That's what it means to devote yourself to teaching the scriptures in the gathering. But we don't just read the scriptures in the gathering. We don't just teach the scriptures in the gathering. We're also called to respond to the scriptures. We're called to respond to God's words. In 1 Timothy 4.13, he says, 
Paul says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. And, and that word exhortation is not a word we use all that often. Um, usually if someone says they want to exhort you, it's because they have some bad news. They're, this is going to be an awkward conversation. They're going to have some difficult things to say to you. Um, but the word exhortation, or actually the, the, the original word, the, the Greek word, um, paraklesis, it, it, it has, it has a, a pretty rich meaning. It, it doesn't just mean to confront someone. It, it, it means to ask someone, to summon them in some cases, to ask, to summon in some cases, it means to encourage, to comfort. You see, exhortation encapsulates all of that. Here's how one scholar puts it. He says, Timothy here is to summon his hearers to respond to God's words that have been read. So Paul, he says, is urging a public ministry that reads the scriptures to the gathered Christians, teaches them its principles, and then exhorts them or, or calls them to respond appropriately. So, so what does the exhortation mean here? It means calling you to respond. And what's that response going to look like? It might look like repentance in some cases. It might look like believing, obeying. That response might in some cases need to be humble praise. But in every single case that the word is read and the word is taught, God's words are sent out. We need to respond. God's words always require a response. The gospel requires a response. And so the question again for us is, how are you responding? How do you respond to God's word when it's taught? And more specifically, when the gospel is once again rehearsed and taught. Is your response questions? That's great, right? If your response is to be engaged, to listen, and, and, and raise questions that need answering, are you responding by asking those questions, by sharing those questions with other people that can maybe guide you into some answers, walk alongside you through those questions? Is your response belief? Like, yes! As God's people said in that, that passage in in. In 2 Kings, they, he reads the word and they say, amen, amen. They're saying, yes, yes. Or is your response ambivalence? Not sure. Or is it apathy? I don't care. A kind of ignoring, a kind of passive apathy that says, this is irrelevant to me. Listen, if you really engage, if you really listen to God's words, there's no doubt that they will require a response of you, a strong response, a thoughtful response, not hasty and thoughtless, but thoughtful. It's amazing, you know, we don't have time to look at it, but in, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus does kind of everything that we're talking about here. He goes into the synagogue, he grabs the scrolls, he reads God's words, he teaches God's words, and he gets a response for God's words. It's really incredible. You see it all happen there. He goes in and he reads from the prophet Isaiah, and then he teaches. He says, everything that's saying in here about this promised one who's going to set captives free, who's going to bring healing and restoration, it's all about me. 
And he starts teaching how he is the very fulfillment of that prophecy. And the people respond. They respond. It's incredible. They respond powerfully. At first, they respond by saying, wow, this is amazing. And then very soon, they respond by trying to kill him. The response is a powerful one because they were engaged. They were listening. And they couldn't help. They couldn't help but respond. So again, how do you respond? When, when God's word is, his words are being read or they're being taught, are you, are you eager to hear? Are you saying, speak, Lord? I, I want to receive and I want to know and I want to believe and I want to be changed. Tell me more, Lord. I believe, but help my unbelief. This weekly rhythm of gathering to receive and respond, it's, it's meant to shape us. But, but if it's mishandled, it can actually deaden us, harden us, so that we just go through another week and God's words are going to be read and God's words are going to be taught and, and, and I'll just come back and do it again and I'm passively just riding through it, waiting for it to be done and, and we become consumers who are either just receiving and, and evaluating how the service went that day, become critics, or we become passive spectators who are just kind of there and watching it all happen in various degrees of wakefulness and just coming back again next week. The book of James actually tells us how to receive and respond to God's words. So I want to read this last passage to you. Here's how James calls us to respond to God's words. Therefore, he says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive, listen, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And that word there, I believe that's the gospel. That gospel that's implanted in every single part of this this. this, this Bible, it's implanted in every story, every proverb, every prophecy is impl implanted in there is the, the message of the gospel. And then he says, be doers of that word, right? So receive it with meekness and then be doers of it, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his face in a mirror. He looks at himself and he goes away and at once he forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a, a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You see how James is calling us to respond with meekness and a dedication that says, Lord, whatever you command me to do, give me the, the grace to do it. I think it was Augustine who said, whatever you command, please supply. I want to believe what you have to say to me. I'm ready to respond in faith, but I can't do it without your spirit at work in me. So, so do that, please. And how can we best do this? We can do it in very practical ways by simply reading the word on our own even before we come in here. Sometimes we know the passage is going to be preached on. We can read that before we come in here. 
pray over it, ask the Lord to show us truth in it, get a good night's sleep, and then come in here and say, we want to receive God's word. And then afterwards, we can talk about it. We can meditate on it. We can talk about it in our families, in our care groups, in community, and seek the Spirit's power to help shape us so that we'll live in light of what we're hearing. Hmm. New Hope, I'll end with this. I think that one of the best ways that we can respond to God's words is to celebrate them, to enjoy them, to revel in the reality of what Jesus has done for us. So as we gather for worship week to week, let's gather in the power of the Spirit under the authority of God's word And believe that this space is designed to, to free us from distraction so they'll be minimized so that we can receive. And, and, and let's, let's, let's remain committed to the fact that our, our gatherings need to be saturated in God's words. Nothing can push that out. And, let, and let's imagine Jesus saying this to us because he is saying this to us. Your Savior and your Lord says to you, until I come... Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Let's devote ourselves to that new hope. Let's pray. Lord, what a gift your words are to us. They speak of your love and your holiness, your commitment to us. The scandalous extents to which you went to make us your people. Your words are light into our hearts. They're a lamp for our feet. Guide us, Lord, and make us willing receivers, hearers and doers of your word. In your name, amen.